Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. And specifically the evening in Santon, it was such a precious time ministering there and seeing so many faces of people who'd been in this congregation with us. And as they came up to before the service and after the service, they were just going to say thank you. They say being in the place where they are now, even in the great church where they're serving now, they realized they were discipled so well here. They received so much here. They realized that so much was invested and built into their lives while they were here, and they just wanted to say thank you for that. And I want to say thank you to you guys for making it possible. And even as I was sharing with some of them, I was reminded of my kids. I've got three daughters, beautiful kids, and it's amazing. I know they're growing. I know that they're growing because from time to time we have to buy new clothes for them and new shoes and new bicycles. But at the same time, I don't see them growing. I had a moment yesterday, we've got one of those couches with a, an armrest on the one side, and my youngest daughter walked in yesterday, and as she walked in, I was lying on the other side of the couch. I looked at her, and I realized she's a head taller than the couch. And I had a flashback to a, a moment when she walked in, and she used to be shorter than the couch. And I was like, she's growing up. She's becoming a big girl. And the crazy thing is our discipleship, our walk with Christ, the, the people around us, they, they're growing hopefully all the time. And I believe if we're in an environment like this, if we're spending time in the presence of the Lord, if we're spending time in the Word of God, if we're spending time around believers who are imparting into our lives, we're going to be growing. And just like with my kids, we don't always see the growth until from time to time we take a photo, we take a step back and we're like, remember where I was six months ago. A year ago, I was shorter than a couch, and look where I am now. And so I want to remind all of us that just like a, a great tree doesn't grow overnight, just like children don't grow into adults overnight, it's those little tiny pieces of daily growth that make them strong and whole and healthy, and our spiritual lives are, are so much the same. This year, one of our our themes, one of the things we're trying to be deliberate about and sharing about a lot is about reading Scripture well. So we've been looking at 1 John, and we've done 1 John 1 and 1 John 2 this month. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll look at 1 John chapter 3. And part of what we're saying as we're just taking time deliberately to look at Scripture just a little bit slowly is, are we reading Scripture well? At a stage, one of the Pharisees comes to Jesus, and they say to Jesus, what should we do about a certain question? What are the most important things, etc.? And Jesus answers them this beautiful way with a question. He says, what does the law say? What is your reading of it? And as we read Scripture, it's so important that we evaluate our reading. And so we've been reading, and a couple of weeks ago, month, in January, we spent a little bit of time just talking about the fact that we have to engage personally with Scripture. It's not an academic exercise. The, the question we don't want to ask is, is what this person is saying right or wrong necessarily? Is there time and a place for those questions? 
But when Scripture really transforms us is when we strip away from that and we say, what are the heart issues that Scripture is exposing in my life? And then that was sort of the one way, and we gave some questions around that. Then in 1 John 2, we looked at a, a theme, and we said, well, what if we identify some words, and we just look at those words all the time, and what do those words teach us about what Scripture has to say about this theme? And we looked around that specifically the idea of favor, a whole bunch of different passages that have to do with favor. One of the reasons we do that is 1 John 2. I had a beautiful time with the second year or the first year Bible school students and last week as we looked at 1 John 2 and there's this beautiful passage in there where John is obviously writing to correct some wrongs. He's obviously writing to a, a group of believers who have believed some things which are not correct according to John's interpretation of Scripture. And he starts by appealing. He says, guys, I've seen and I've heard and that's why I'm writing to you. And that's why I can write to them. And he says, beware of some stuff. Obviously, in church, we need to do that. But I've learned many years ago, someone gave this example. They said, how do you identify a fake 150 rand note? How do you identify a fake 150 rand note? Well, it's really easy. There is no 150 rand note. So any 150 rand note is a fake note. If someone wants to come up to you with a 150 rand note, you can know it's fake. Similarly, I, when I was at school, I worked as a cashier at pick and pay. You know, beep, 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 scanning. My best friend and I, and we'd have our shift at the same time, and we'd sit at the till next to each other, and we'd have competition to see who can scan the fastest. And I think quite a few people got home with dented and maybe broken merchandise and maybe opened a couple of Cokes and had it sprayed all over them, and oops, but we were fast. But you know, never once did they pull us aside and say, this is how you identify a fake 100 rand note. But what we did realize after a while is if every day for an hour or two, you're after school, as you go to work, you're working with real notes. And somebody puts a fake note in your hand, it's like you can just pick it up. You, you just know something about this fake. Something about this is, is not right. It, it just it doesn't feel right. I can't explain it. I don't have a list of 49 checkpoints, and this one is number 36 on the list. It's just something doesn't feel right about this. And one of the best ways for us to be able to identify the untruth is to know the truth really well. One of the best ways to identify when the enemy comes in with what the Bible calls lies so clever they sound like the truth is if we know the truth really really well. The only way we can know the truth really, really well is through the Word. Studying the Word, reading the Word, allowing the Word to, to teach us. And one of the things that I've, I've seen as these weird, strange doctrines come in, it's, they come in a variety of different ways. I can imagine John here is writing, and as he writes to this church, they've had some influences coming in from the outside. And he wants to correct in today's world, there are so many influences. There are so anybody can start a YouTube channel. Anybody can write a book. Anybody can write what, whatever they think happens to be a nice thing and something. And I've been following Jesus for over 20 years already. It's scary to think that, and some of you aren't even 20 years old. But hey, that's okay. One of the things that I've learned in this time is 
It's amazing how solid believers get drawn to what I would call fringe things. One of the things I've learned is just the power of keeping the main thing the main thing. Someone said many years ago, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing. And once we identify what the main thing is, then there are a whole bunch of other things which aren't necessarily central themes of Scripture. They're not unimportant. It's not that we mustn't talk about them, pray about them. You know, I know of some church splits that have happened because people weren't in agreement about whether you should baptize somebody in water once or three times. You know, is it a baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or is it the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And churches have split over things like that. And it's amazing how sometimes as honest believers, we get drawn into these fringe things and, and their primary goal is to keep us away from the things that matter. It's not that those questions are necessarily unimportant. It's not that everything in Scripture that we don't agree on, we must just ignore. It's not what we're saying. What we must learn to do is identify what are the fringe things and, and what are the main things. And that's a little bit of what one John writes about, or John writes about in, in 1 John chapter 2. Let's not be drawn in by fringe matters. See, the Bible is so complex, and I, in a sense, I love it this way. The reality is if you and I or anybody else were to take seriously our whole life and study Scripture, to it, analyze it, give up all of our time to study and to devotion in the Word, that as we come to the end of our lives and we talk about what we have learned from the Word, from the purest of hearts, the chances are really good we're not going to agree on everything. There are going to be some things that we read differently, we interpret different, we see different. And I believe God's okay with that. But what He is also wants us to hold on to is hopefully we're all going to agree on a couple of main things. Hopefully we're all going to agree that Jesus rose from the grave. We're going to agree that His blood is sufficient for all of our sin to be washed away. We're going to agree on the, the important matters of Scripture. And so this evening, I'm wanting us to, to imagine two things. But one is the, the point that I've been making now. What is the main thing in Scripture? If not the main things, then what are some of the, the main things, those themes that as we begin to study Scripture, we see that, wow, that, that's a real theme of this book and of this book and of this book. This seems to be a theme that carries through Scripture. Then that would be a central theme, a main thing. That then is not a peripheral thing. It's not a fringe thing. Then it's a main thing if we find it repeatedly in Scripture. It's, it's something that for Scripture is important. What are some of those main things? I've given tonight sort of two titles. One is the main thing. What could that possibly be? And the other one is what I call the why factor. And I've stolen that from a phrase I heard many years ago at a church conference where a guy was talking about leading his volunteers, and he said, don't forget the why factor. I'm incredibly stubborn and hard-headed. Sometimes it works fantastically in my advantage, sometimes amazingly in my disadvantage. I said this morning, it's like my daughters, and I look at them, and especially one of them, she's incredibly stubborn, incredibly, very hard-headed. And then as a parent, it's a little bit sobering to realize where it comes from, to see it manifest in their lives. 
But part of that is anything that she really wants to do, she'll do it. She'll find a way to do it. And anything she really want, doesn't want to do, she'll find a way not to do it. She'll find a way. What is the difference? The difference is this why factor. If we can speak, and I've learned, if we can speak into the motivation, if we can get her motivated to do something, she'll do anything. She's hard-headed enough to press through. In the same way, if we get her motivated enough not to do something, there's no ways on earth that can happen. She won't open the door. She'll stand in front of the door and hit her head, bang her head against the door until the door bleeds, but she's not, until her head bleeds, the door probably as well, but she's just not going to lift her hand and open the door. She's too stubborn for that. There's an internal motivation. And perhaps if we study Scripture, here's a, a question which I think is a really good question. And we need to learn to ask good questions if we want to get good answers. What motivates God? What motivates God? What makes God do what God does? And if we're able to get some form of answer to that question, what if we were to step back and say, well, if that is what motivates God, what if I began to allow that to motivate me? What if the reason for God doing things became my reason for doing things? And so this evening, those are sort of the two parallels we're looking at. What could be the, the main thing? There can only be one ultimate thing. One thing above everything else in any of our lives. There could be a whole bunch of important things. But only one thing. If you had to summarize scripture, someone comes up to you and says, this looks like a really amazing book. I see you reading it all the time. It moves around the house. Different people have spoken about it, and it's the best-selling book of all time. What is it about? Can you summarize this for me in one verse? I wonder what you would say. I don't think tonight we're going to get the, the winner, but there'll be a couple of finalists. One of them might be something like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I throw verse 17 in there, which says, that the very next verse, because God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through Him can be saved. Some of us could be like Galatians 2 verse 20. It's the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so each one of us would have a verse or two that we'd want to drop into the hat to say, this is the central verse of Scripture. For this evening, I want to drop another verse in there which perhaps is not an obvious verse at first. Perhaps not the verse that necessarily we would all have thought of when we started. But it's a verse we find in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 42, verse 8. It's God speaking, and He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. That's a pretty bold statement to say that should be in there. I think it should be in the finalists. As we carry on this evening, we're going to find two words occurring together over and over. And in a sense, they're married together in God's mind. 
It's the word glory and name. God's glory is tied to His name. God's name cannot be separated from His glory. For God, the two are, are woven together. When you talk about God's name and you're referencing His glory, when you're talking about His glory and His mind, you're talking about His name. Those two are, are the same throughout Scripture. We see an incredibly instructive thread in Jesus' life. Here in John chapter 12, what's happening is John is about, that's not John, Jesus is about to go through this, the time of being arrested, crucified, the whole process, and then being raised from the dead again. He's about to go through this time which is incredibly, in a natural human sense, intimidated by, as you and I probably would be as well. You were sitting in here in this room, and you know if you go out of here, people are going to arrest you, and they're going to start beating you, like shredding you back, your back with whips, whips with little stones and pieces of glass and stuff in it. They're going to do their utmost to humiliate you as much as they can, and then they're going to string you up on a big plank of wood until you basically bleed out can't breathe anymore. I'd be pretty intimidated about going out of here <laughs> if I know what's lying here. And Jesus is at that point. And at that point, this, this moment where sort of everything comes together, he's praying. And his prayer for me in this moment is so informative. Jesus prays here. He says, my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came so he prays one prayer, and what is his prayer? Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name, and I will do so again. It is amazing to me that in this one moment where Jesus could pray absolutely anything, the prayer he prays isn't an all of these things that I mentioned now are super important biblical doctrines. I'm not knocking them. I'm not taking the importance away in any way. But he is not praying, Father, save all of mankind. He's not praying, Father, redeem them from their curse. He's not praying, Father, forgive all their sins. He's not praying any of that. All of those things are incredibly important. There seems to be something else at the top of his mind. And the one thing... The only thing right now that he is concerned about, that he is praying about, is the glory of his Father's name. I want to make a statement which you might agree with right away. You might say, yes. You might be, I'm not quite so sure. You might even be, no, Philip, you're wrong. Statement which, for some of us, depending on our background, might be quite controversial. And Hopefully by the end of this evening, you maybe you don't even agree with me yet at the end of this evening, but maybe your disagreement is not quite as strong. I want to hold before you that Jesus, not Jesus, God the Father, everything that He has ever done here on this earth, He did for His name and for His glory. If you want to talk about the why factor when it comes to God, why has God done Whatever it is that God has done, there will be one reason why He did it. For His name and for His glory. You say, Philip, it's a pretty strong statement to make. It is a strong statement to make. Let's look at a, a couple of things, maybe before we even get there. 
It's a beautiful night tonight, and we don't have load shedding, so it's maybe not going to work so well. But next time there's load shedding at night, walk outside and look out at the stars. Just try to count them. We know that's not possible. There are billions of them, and every now and again, mankind makes a bigger telescope. And I think it's almost about time for a newer, bigger telescope, because the old one, the one we had, is, I don't know, is the Hubble still up there? Is it still working? I don't know. But there was this Hubble. At the moment, they're building one, actually. It's just finished. I forgot about it. It's not quite a telescope in space, but it's right here in the Karoo, or half of it is in the Karoo. It's called the Square Kilometer Array. That's a big telescope. A kilometer by a kilometer. They've put up all of these radio things, and it's in the middle of the Karoo. There's hardly any radio stuff there. Half of it is in the Karoo, and half of it is in Australian Outback. And these two talk to each other, and the idea is that they give us great pictures of what's going on in space billions of years, billions upon billions of light years away. These huge, majestic, magnificent creations way out there. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why are they there? Psalm 19 tells us, verse 11, I think, yeah, sorry, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. You want to know why space as we know it stretches from infinity to infinity? Because if you want to declare the glory of God, you have to be infinitely big. You cannot fully declare the glory of God if you are limited in finite in any way. I remember studying maths. At one stage, somebody, this is a nerd in me coming out, made this statement and it stuck with me. And it's so true. You know the crazy thing? about counting to infinity, it's not that you don't know where to end, but you don't know where to start. What is the first number to count if you're counting to infinity? Is it 1? Or is it 0 0.1? Or is it 0 0.01? Or is it 0 0.001? Or 0 0.000? You, you can't even get the first number to start to get to infinity. This is mass out there, this hugeness in space. Serves one purpose, to declare the glory of God. So let's look at your life and, and my life. A couple of things that God has, has done in your life. I'm glad I'm created. Anyone else say, you're glad you exist. I'm here because God created me. I'm not an accident. I'm just not a freak of nature. Someone rolled the dice and after million years of, millions upon billions of years of accidents, I popped out. I'm here because God created me. He shaped me and he formed me. Listen to this, what he says in Isaiah chapter 43. Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. Do you know why you were created? The very reason that you exist is the same reason as the stars in the sky. To bring glory to God. Anyone here been forgiven of some sins? I've been forgiven of some sins. It's just me. A couple of the rest of us hopefully see. Okay, great. Okay, we're winning here. We've been forgiven of our sin. Have you ever wondered why you've been forgiven of your sin? David prays after he messes up really badly. We're going to look at that in a moment. In Psalm 25, and he prays, For the honor of your name, Lord, forgive my many, many sins. Some of your translations would say, for your name's sake. 
forgive my sins, for they are many. Most of us have access to Google or some web, some web browser. We can go to a website, something like BibleGateway.com, or even just open the Bible app on your phone. Go do some homework. Go search all of the scriptures that have this phrase in your namesake or my namesake. Maybe just Google namesake, those two in scripture. Search them forth for God's name's sake. One of those things is he forgives our sins. You say, Philip, that's a fantastic Old Testament principle. But what about the New Testament? Well, we've just read 1 John chapter 2, the whole of February. We were reading that. And what does he say there? I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. That's why your sins are forgiven. Not only are sins forgiven, we've been saved. We've been redeemed. Salvation is working in our life. It's continually we're working out our salvation. But at the same time, we have through God's grace, come to a point of being saved from some stuff. In Psalm 79, the psalmist prays, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us. Provide atonement for our sins. Save us for your name's sake. Do it for your name's sake, God. We've seen that you and I were created for, our name, for his name's sake. We've been forgiven for his name's sake, our sins. Not only were we forgiven, but atonement for our sin was made for his name's sake. In Ezekiel chapter 20, we read in two separate sections in Ezekiel we're going to read now. The one is God is super upset with the people of Israel. They've been carried away into captivity. And there in captivity, they've made a mess of God's name. God wants to destroy them. You, know? you think maybe it's better if I just wipe these people out. But watch what he says in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 9. But I didn't do it. I didn't destroy them. For I acted to protect the honor of my name. I would not allow shame to be brought on my name among the surrounding nations who saw me reveal myself by bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. In a modern sense, God doesn't destroy you when you're a sinner. Do you know why? Because of his name's sake. He doesn't destroy us when we're destroy us when we're bound in our sin before we come to know him for the honor of his name a little bit later in ezekiel chapter 36 the prophet speaks to the people of israel and he says you've been carried away in captivity so you were came out of egypt into the promised land and god says but i'm going to set you free and that's a prophetic picture of god coming into your life and my life and redeeming us from all of the sin all of the stuff in life that captures us and enslaves us and God comes and sets us free from all of that. We call it deliverance in a theological sense. God comes to deliver us. And you know why he delivers us? Watch what he says here in Ezekiel 36. But when they were scattered among the nations, they brought shame on my holy name. For the nation said, these are the people of the Lord. But he couldn't keep them safe in his own land. Then I was concerned for my holy name. On which my people brought shame among the nations. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message. From the sovereign Lord, I am bringing you back, but not because you deserve it. You know why God sets you free from your sin? Not because you deserve it. I am doing it to protect my holy name, on which you brought shame. Sorry, yeah, on which you brought shame while you were scattered among the nations. I will show how holy my great name is, the name on which you brought shame among the nations. 
reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. There is something about God's name, about the honor of his name, about his glory, which speaks to the very heart of the God who we serve. It's interesting for me, I've watched a couple of Hollywood movies in my life, and I might have missed it. It might be out there, and I just haven't watched that movie yet. But I haven't yet watched the movie where in the middle of sort of a big argument or a fight, a, a big war scene where something goes horribly wrong, I haven't seen the movie yet where they use the name of Buddha in vain. I haven't yet seen the movie where they use the name of some of the Hindu gods or even Muhammad in vain. So that the enemy understands there is something about the God we serve that if we can begin to touch his name, something about his glory is defiled. There's something about that that the enemy understands that God's name is tied to his glory. So I want to challenge all of us. What do we do when there's blasphemy around? What do we do when people are just using God's name in vain? I'm not saying we must necessarily judge them, but specifically when our money is involved. Oh, I paid 70 rand for this. I went to watch a movie the other day with my kids. Paid 70 rand for this movie. Movies are crazy expensive. God, they blasphemed God. This movie was so going to continue to support people who are holding the name of Jesus to ransom and wanting to break his name down. Oh, God, your name is holy. God, it's important to me. God, everything you've ever done on this earth, maybe you did for your glory. Psalm 23, I did a wedding a couple of weeks ago and spoke on this psalm, a psalm which most of us probably know might be able to quote large parts of it. The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. And in verse 3, look what he says here. He restores my soul. We've prayed a little bit about that tonight. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads me in the right way to go. Why? For his name's sake. As you are sitting here, you have been created for his name's sake. You've been forgiven of your sin for his name's sake. You've been saved. There's been atonement for your sin has been made for his name's sake. You've been delivered and set free from the bondage of this earth for his name's sake. God leads you in the path that you should go going forward for his name's sake. You're beginning to see a, a theme around what's going on here. King David, we spoke about him a moment ago. Great God, man of God. Sort of the the nostalgic king, if you read scripture, there's, there's one king, there's one like, I want to just be a king like David. I want God calls David a man after his own heart. David failed. I love our scripture. He's not afraid to show us that every person fails. Not one of us is sinless. Even the great king David. And David's sin was pretty grave. So David, he's the king. And the way I picture this, I could be horribly wrong, but this is just the picture I have in my mind. He's the king, so he's got the biggest house. It's not good for your political career, your social standing, if you kind of build your house bigger than the king's house. Maybe that's just my way of thinking about things. But, but David has this, this house. And in those days, the bath is on the roof. And so David is sitting on his house, which is the highest of all the houses, and he's looking down at the other people taking their baths. And he's watching this 
women take a bath. Perhaps before that, watching women, Scripture doesn't say this explicitly, but this does seem to be what is implied. David is watching other women. He's caught up in pornography and adultery in those days. And like always, it moves into action, sinful action. Eventually, just looking isn't enough, and he steps out and he invites Bathsheba over. And just the backstory to this is crazy because Bathsheba has a husband. Her husband is not at home right now. Do you know where her husband is? Her husband is at war fighting for David's name where David's meant to be. That scripture starts with in the spring when kings go out to war and David doesn't go out to war. But this man has gone out to war. We read his name when it speaks about David's mighty men. There were a bunch of men, a small number in the whole of Israel who were committed to protecting David, who were his best warriors. This man's name is in that list. David sends for the wife and effectively rapes her. The message comes back, she's pregnant. David, like any good politician, decides this is ripe for a cover-up. So he sends for the husband. Who's out of war. He says, bring the husband. And what he's thinking is, if the husband comes, the husband can be with his wife. And if his wife, then, hey, it's a premature baby. We don't quite know. It looks a bit like David. Hey, let's call him David. Whatever, you know. But this man comes and he's too righteous. He says, I cannot possibly go and sleep with my wife while my friends are out at war. So he sleeps in the street. David hears about this. He's like, this is not good news for me. This guy's not helping me. He's not covering up my sin for me. So David calls him over and David writes a note, which effectively is his death sentence. It's an instruction to the general. Rolls it up, puts a royal seal on it, gives it to this man, says, go give it to the general. He gives it to the general. The general opens it, reads it, and says, well, if I do this, people are going to die. And the message is, that's the point. I want this man to die. David has him killed. He rapes a woman, tries to cover it up, has it killed, has the husband killed. That is a pretty big mess up sort of by, even by modern standards. God, he, he breaks down. That's where that prayer we read a little bit earlier in Psalm 25 comes from. Forgive my sins for they are many for your name's sake. And David is sitting there and he's, he's wrestling and the message that comes to him of all of the things, if you were God, about that whole situation, what would you want to speak to David about the most? What is the one thing that you feel like, David, this is that grates me the most about this situation. David, you didn't listen to me. David, you violated my instructions, my oath, my commandments. David, you meant to be king and you haven't lived up to the way a king. What is the one thing that you think would be the number one thing at the top of God's mind? Watch what we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. However, because by this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. That's God's biggest issue. David, this whole mess up, my biggest issue in this whole mess up, my name. My name. David, you've messed up royally, and you know what? It affects my name. David, I can forgive a whole bunch of your sin, and God does. David, we can wipe it away. David, there's a bunch of stuff that 
My grace is sufficient for you. But because you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, this child who is born to you shall surely die. There has to be judgment. David, I can't overlook what you have done to my name. David, my name is holy. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory, I will not share with anyone. I won't allow my glory and my name to be messed with. There's something in God's heart. There's something in God's motivation. There's something that motivates God about His Holy Spirit. So I want us to read a a couple of passages, well-known passages for those of us who know Scripture. Passages you've probably read many times, sung at times, you'll notice some songs from these passages, prayed many times. But probably like me, many times totally miss the point of the passage. I heard from somebody who I, I really trust share with me a, about a, another prominent minister he heard. So I believe it. I haven't, it's not first, totally first-hand information, but I, I fully believe and trust the person who shared this with me. He said he was listening to somebody from another well-known ministry, and this person was sharing how he believes in the supernatural. And so he chooses to read the supernatural in every situation in Scripture. That's not the way to read Scripture. Yes, God is supernatural. There are a whole bunch of things in supernatural. Then he gives an example of a big storm where God comes and he calms the wind and the waves. What is the big takeaway of that storm? The big takeaway, the disciples said, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. How this guy reads it, he says it was a demonic storm. It must have been a demonic storm because Jesus got up and he calmed the storm. You know what he's doing? He's taking something about the lordship of Jesus away. He's saying Jesus isn't strong enough. Jesus is not the Lord of all creation that even the wind and the waves obey him. And he reads into the text. He says it has to be a demon storm because it was quieted. Maybe Jesus is bigger and he is stronger. So that's not what we want to do as we read scripture. We don't want to take our viewpoint and insert it and inject it into every passage of Scripture. But what we do want to do, and if you're reading for the supernatural, that's great. Let's be open not to read it into the text, but to see it when it is there. In the same way, when you're reading about His glory, I don't want us to insert it everywhere, because it's not everywhere. But as we read it, let's be aware to identify it and to see it when it is there. So I want us to look at three passages which perhaps we've read many times, but maybe we've missed just a little bit as we've read it. First one in Ephesians chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. Who knows this passage? Who knows the scripture? Who's read it before? Who's prayed it? Who's prayed it over somebody else? Who sung a song around this a little bit? Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. We read that, we pray that all of that is true. Once again, I'm not taking any of that away. But if you slow down and you reread that, you'll notice that is just a description. To him, who is this him? Him who is able to do all of these amazing things and does all of these amazing things in our lives. But that's not the message of this passage. Because he carries on. To him, the one we've just described, 
be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You see, the focus of this verse is not this God who can do all of these amazing things as much as it is true and we hold on to the incredible, undescribable thing, indescribable things that God does in our lives. Don't forget that. But that's not the focus of the scripture. What is the focus of the scripture? The focus of the scripture is to Him be glory. To Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. That's the focus. To Him be glory. Let the church bring glory to Him among all generations in the name of Jesus. The second one, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God elevated Him. This is Jesus. The God, the Father, elevated Him, Jesus, to the place of highest honor and gave Him the name above all other names. We know this passage too, don't we? We sing it. We pray it. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. I had a friend, a pastor friend in um, Jeffreys Bay, led a great church then, now he's leading a fantastic church in Canada. And from time to time in ministry, you find people who actively oppose you. They're difficult about ministry, about Jesus. And I remember we walked away from one of those meetings, and Peter was his name. He just smiled, and he, he said, he too will bow. <laughs> this man who is being difficult, he too will bow. Every knee will bow. We hope and pray that we all bow on this earth. It's so much easier than having to bow in judgment in eternity. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And most of us, if we're honest, when we read this, when we quote this, when we pray this, when we sing this, we put a full stop there. Am I right? It didn't end there. No. God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. Here's a crazy thing. Do you know why we worship Jesus? Because it brings the Father glory. You know why Jesus' name is above every other name? Because it brings the Father glory glory. You know why every knee will bow before him? Because it brings the Father glory. Maybe, just maybe, everything that God has ever done here on this earth, he did for his name and for his glory. I wonder what our lives would look like. I wonder what your life would look like. If tomorrow morning you woke up and there was just one thing for you that was the main thing, it was, God, today, how do I live in a way that brings you glory? Lord, how do I study for this test in a way that brings you glory, God? How do I invite my friend to family camp in a way that brings you glory? How do I prepare for the business deal in a way that brings you glory? How do I speak to the people around me in a way that brings you glory? How do I deal with my finances in a way that brings you glory? How do I give up my time in a way that brings you glory? Lord, how do I make my decisions in a way that, that brings you glory? And then tonight we put our head on the pillow and we say, God, will I bring you glory today? 
God, thank you that I could bring you glory today. But God, in that situation, I don't think I brought you glory. God, I'm sorry. Tomorrow morning again, I wake up and I say, God, today, would you give me grace to bring you glory? God, a meeting that I've got to go to, God, I want to bring you glory, God. I'm going to be on a bus ride, and in that bus ride, I want to bring you glory. Lord, I need to sign a contract for work, God. I, I want to bring you glory. We're sitting here today, and I hope you've got a promise from God. I hope you do. I hope God has spoken promises into your heart. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for you, for those who love him. But his spirit has revealed them to us. I, I hope and pray that his spirit has revealed some of the incredible things that God has prepared for you. But out of all of those promises, which of them for you is the most precious? God is not saying this today, so don't take this as a word from God. But if you had to, if you had to give all of them up, don't. In Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. But hypothetically speaking, if you had to give them all up and only hold on to one promise, what would that one promise be? The one promise for you, which God, if I have to drop everything else, this is the one promise that I want to see come to pass. Which one would that be? I wonder for how many of us it would be Habakkuk's. What's this beautiful promise? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What if we were to say, God, I would love a spouse, Lord. I would love to do really well in my test, God. This job I'm dreaming of, Lord, this opportunity, God, all of these dreams, these promises, the family, the children, God, I want all of those, God. But the one thing above everything else that I want to see happen, God, is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of you. Once again, just like Jesus' prayer, this passage for me is so informative. It is amazing, and once again, I'm not knocking any of these doctrines. They are crucially important. We need to teach them. We need to believe them. We need to hold on to them. But this passage doesn't say, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the love of the Lord. It doesn't say, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the grace of the Lord. It doesn't say, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the judgment of the Lord either. It doesn't say, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the truth of the Lord, the knowledge of the whatever else you want to put there of the Lord. No. What is the earth going to be filled with? The knowledge of the glory of the Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory, I will not share with anybody else. I will not give to anybody else. My praise is not going to any carved images. I am the Lord. That is my name. There's something about the glory of God's name that when we lock into this, when we begin to say, God, I want to begin to live for that one thing that unfortunately cannot happen today. I wish it could, but I don't think it can. Is that we cannot walk out of these doors and say, God, from today on, God, I want to make what's important to you important to me. So from today on, I'm going to live for your glory. Unfortunately, none of us have it in us to do that. We can pray that. We can say, God, would you make that my desire, but that can only begin to happen if the Holy Spirit works in our hearts a desire for His glory. We don't have it within us to live for His glory. As much as I would love for us to be able to think we do, we don't. But what we can begin to do is, God, 
God, this glory thing seems to be pretty important to you, God. I've got all of these other dreams and desires and hopes. And God, I don't quite think I need you calling me to let go of them, God. But I want to, God, can you help me just to put one thing above all of them? God, I want to have a great family for your namesake. I want to be a good father and a good husband for your namesake. Father, I want to do really, really well in this test for your namesake. God, I want to have that job opportunity for your namesake. I want to conduct myself well around the people around me for your namesake. And God, my big question isn't so much what is the stuff that kind of is going to make me rich or get me most part. The big question is, God, what's going to bring glory to your name? They're not mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean that because you're living for the glory of your name, God can't breathe over you. We've spoken about that in the last couple of weeks. It also doesn't mean that if you're living for the glory of God's name, that he's suddenly going to buy you Ferraris. doesn't mean that either. doesn't mean that there's not going to bring in hardship. Something happens when we begin to pray that prayer that Jesus prayed. Nevertheless, for this reason I pray. Father, glorify your name. So I've got two passages that I want to leave us with. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 8, as motivation, as encouragement, as prayer, that we can pray before Jesus. Some of us may know this Isaiah one, if you know of Louis Giglio, Chris Tomlin, the Passion Movement. They're also known as the 268 generation based on Isaiah chapter 26, verse 8. This verse right here simply says this. Yes, which by the way, when praying to God, that's a great way to start the prayer. Yes. Whatever God asks, yes. We'll ask questions later. Yes, God, yes. Yes. Yes, Lord. In this translation, yes. In the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance. The desire for our soul is for your name. The New Living Translation praises the second part of that, that verse. Our heart's desire is to glorify your name. And so this evening, what I want to encourage us about a little bit is, what if we were to say, God, you seem to be, be motivated, Lord, by a desire for the glory of your name. God, would you do something in my heart, God, because I want to live for the glory of your name. I don't know what that looks like, God. I, I don't even know what that means tomorrow when I wake up, God, but I, I just know that I, I want to live for that, Lord. I know I can't live for that. I'm probably going to fail a couple of times, and there are going to be times when I, I don't live for your glory, God, but I want to just start living for your glory. I want to start having that as, as the main thing for me, God. The main thing. God, out of all of the things that they can write on my grave one day, maybe more than anything it would mean just to be able to say, he brought God glory. She brought God glory. He lived for God's name. She lived for God's name. God, I, I want to live my life for, for that to be true. That's you. We're going to pray with you in, in just a moment. Psalm 71, verse 8, a powerful prayer. A prayer that I want to encourage you. You can pray every day. Fantastic way to start your day is to pray. Psalm chapter 71, verse 8. It simply says this. Let my mouth be filled with your praise 
and with your glory all the days. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Let my mouth be full with your praise and with your glory all the days. God, let the only things that come out of my mouth be stuff that glorifies your name. Let the only desires that stir in my heart be the things, God, that glorify your name. Let my actions be things that glorify your name. So, Lord, as I approach this project, as I approach this group, as I approach this circumstance, as I approach this opportunity, God, my my major prayer, God, is simply, God, what's going to bring you glory? Because that's the route I choose to take. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory, I will not give to another. There's something about why God does things that is drawn to His name and to His glory. That might not be the number one central message of all of Scripture, but it has to be up there. It has to be really close with a couple of other really important principles. I wonder what our church would look like, guys. I wonder what our communities would look like, our classrooms would look like, our families would look like, our studies would look like, our family camp this weekend would look like. All of us just came and we said one thing, God, I want to do this for the glory of your name. Can we stand together? I'd love for us to pray as the band comes up again. Father, I want to thank you this evening that, that you did love us so much that you sent your only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That you didn't send your son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through you can be saved. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you, Father, that you sent him. Thank you, Father, that through the ages you've never turned your back on us. You've never let us go, Lord. Thank you that even this evening, you've just so faithful to speak to us. Lord, even way before I stood up and said the first word, you were already speaking to us because your spirit speaks to us. You lead us in truth and you lead us in righteousness. Jesus, thank you that you obeyed for the Father's name. Thank you that your prayer wasn't, Father, save me from this hell. Your prayer was, Father, glorify your name. And so we realize that, Father, glorifying your name isn't always easy, Lord. It costs us much. But we also know that there's nothing more glorious worth living for than the glory of your name. And so tonight, Father, I want to bring my heart before you again. Father, I want to pray for every single precious creation who you have made standing here in front of me, Jesus, who you have created for your glory, God. We bring ourselves before you, and Lord, we just, if you want to say that, I don't want to be presumptuous. If you want to say this, just simply begin to say, God, I want to live for the glory of your name. 
I want to breathe for the glory of your name. I want to act for the glory of your name, God. But the wrong that just between you and God, you make that commitment. I can't do it for you or before. For you or on your behalf. I can't do it in your stead. It's, it's you speaking to God. So, Lord, you see our hearts. You know our failures, Lord. You know the other dreams and the desires, those things which are us most and ultimate and so important to us, Lord. You know them, God. Yes, Lord. We thank you that so many of those dreams, those desires, those hopes are from you, God. And in you, all of your promises are yes and amen, God. We also realize, God, that there's perhaps there's more. There's more in your name and there's more in your glory, God. We pray for grace, Lord, that your spirit would lead us to make that utmost in our life, God. I want to ask you before the band leads us, just sense God really wants us to minister to some people tonight. Lay hands on them, pray with some of us. And the band's going to lead us in a time of song just around this principle as well. But if tonight that's you, if something in your heart is saying, God, I just want to make a commitment to live for your glory. I know I can't, God. I don't have it within me, but I want to do it, Lord. Maybe you've done this many times. Maybe you've never made a commitment around this cause. If that's you tonight, I want to ask you, just be super bold and step forward. We want to pray with you. I just sense God wants to come and do something and some of our spirits tonight. If it's you tonight, you want to say, God, I want to live for your name and for your glory day in and day out. Just step forward. Is there anyone like that? I'm not talking about salvation. We're not talking about coming to Christ for the first time. It, it might include that so much more. Saying, God, I, I just tonight want to take a step to say, God, I'm putting you and your name above everything else. Step forward if God's willing. Just, just be bold. I'm going to take a moment and pray with you. Say, God, I, I just want to choose to, just figuratively speaking, just right now to walk away from all of the other beautiful things that you put in my life, and I just want to walk forward for your glory, God. Lord, it's scary. I don't know what that looks like, but I know there's no greater reason for me to be alive. The very reason why you created me. God, we want to live for your glory. Father, I thank you for every soul standing in front. God, I thank you that right now there's something so precious happening inside of them. Something that is only your spirit does is deep cries out to deep. God, commit them to you right now. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org 
browse our website, www.shofaronline.org, or like us on facebook.com forward slash Pretoria.